At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 13, Cold War Profiles, Molotov, Forrestal. So I'm back from China, um, and I got to see Mao at Tiananmen Square, which was a very interesting experience. And I checked out a few museums with some Cold War-related content, uh, which I'll have up on the, on the Facebook page. So in this episode, we will be briefly examining the lives of the early uh, leaders of the Cold War. Uh, we will be examining their, their lives leading up to the Cold War and how these lives helped to shape the opening stages of the conflict. Uh, this is not a definitive account of their lives, but a basic account of their lives. I've added these profile episodes into the series to provide a little background about major figures throughout the Cold War, to better understand who these people were, where they were coming from, and their perspective on issues. James Forrestal, U.S. Secretary of Defense, and Molotov, the Soviet Foreign Minister, were both bureaucrats who rose to the top of their respective political and economic systems, yet both met with a tragic fate falling from grace in 1949, very much fitting for our 13th episode. The reason I chose to look at these two figures is while people like Truman and Stalin helped to shape the age, there were thousands of other figures in both bureaucracies that also helped to shape the Cold War through their opinions they offered their bosses and through their own personal decisions. It's impossible for me to give voice to all these people. But it's important to remember states can't operate efficiently without bureaucracy. They represent the people who advise the leaders and put their decisions into action, which subsequently affects the lives of millions of people. In most histories, these people are looked over as historians tend to either focus on leaders like Truman or the lives of everyday people. But in this episode, I want to provide some insight into these two important figures who worked in the background to influence their bosses and to shape the Cold War and the world we live in today. Vyacheslav Molotov, the foreign minister of the Soviet Union, is a reoccurring figure who has appeared from time to time in the series thus far and was a leading figure in Soviet leadership. Molotov was born Vyacheslav Sergeban in the village of Kirkok, uh, now Kirov Oblast, the son of a shop clerk. A shy young man, Molotov assisted his father in running the family business. He was educated at a secondary school in Kazan and joined the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party in 1906 before becoming attracted to the radical Bolshevik faction, headed by Lenin. He opposed the autocratic rule of the Tsars and was appalled by the living conditions of millions of his fellow countrymen and was motivated by the Russian Revolution of 1905. He soon took the moniker Molotov, derived from the, a, the Russian word for hammer. He was arrested in 1909 and spent two years in exile in Volgda. In 1911, he enrolled at St. Petersburg Polytechnic. Molotov joined the editorial staff of a new underground Bolshevik newspaper there called Pravda, where he met Stalin for the first time. 
Molotov worked as a revolutionary for the next several years, writing for the party press and helping in organizing the party. In 1914, he moved from St. Petersburg to Moscow, but was arrested and exiled to eastern Siberia. In 1916, he escaped from his Siberian exile and returned to St. Petersburg. When the February Revolution occurred in 1917, he was one of the few Bolshevik leaders in the capital. Under his direction, Pravda took to the left to oppose the provisional government formed after the revolution. When Stalin returned to the capital, he reversed Molotov's line, but when Lenin arrived, he overruled Stalin. Despite this, Molotov became a protege and close adherent to Stalin, an alliance to which he owed his later position. Molotov became a member of the Military Revolutionary Committee, which planned the October Revolution and helped bring the Bolsheviks to power. In 1920, he became secretary to the Central Committee of the Ukrainian Bolshevik Party. Lenin recalled him, though, to Moscow in 1921, elevating him to full membership of the Central Committee, and he became a non-voting member of the Politburo in 1921, becoming a full member with the help of Stalin in 1926. During the power struggles which followed Lenin's death in 1924, Molotov remained a loyal supporter of Stalin against his various rivals. Trotsky and his supporters underestimated Molotov, as did many others. Trotsky called him a mediocrity personified. However, this outward dullness concealed a sharp mind and a great administrative talent. He operated mainly behind the scenes. Stalin found in Molotov a hard-working, reliable, and highly efficient assistant. Molotov had an extreme patience in negotiating and bureaucratic matters, qualities that would serve him well as foreign minister. In 1930, Molotov was rewarded for his loyalty and hard work by being named the chairman of the Council of People's Commissars, sort of like head of state or prime minister. Molotov oversaw Stalin's collectivization of agriculture. He followed Stalin's orders by using a combination of force and propaganda to crush peasant resistance to collectivization, including the deportation of millions of kulaks and others to forced labor camps. Contemporary historians estimate that between 7 and 11 million people died either of starvation or in labor camps during this period. Molotov also oversaw the implementation of the first five-year plan for rapid industrialization and the Great Purge from 1936 to 1938, which saw the execution of between 600,000 and 1.2 million government officials. In private, and even after Stalin's death, Molotov supported the Great Purge and the executions carried out, and even after the period of de-Stalinization in the 1950s. Despite the great human cost, the Soviet Union, under Molotov's nominal premiership, made great strides in the adoption and widespread implementation of agrarian and industrial technology. Stalin and Molotov believed it was necessary to build up the Soviet Union's industrial base to build a modern military to defend themselves against their capitalist and fascist enemies in Europe and the Far East. Ultimately, it was this arms industry, along with American Lend-Lease aid, which helped the Soviet Union to prevail in World War II. Although, on the other hand, it should be noted that the Great Purge had killed thousands of, Red Ar of the Red Army's best army officers contributing to the early defeats in 1941. Moreover, the millions of people who had died in collectivization were sorely missed during the war, and the Soviet government's poor treatment of these peoples of the Baltic and the Ukraine helped to contribute to defections to the German side. In 1939, following the 1938 Munich Agreement and Hitler's subsequent invasion of Czechoslovakia, Stalin believed that Britain and France would not be reliable allies against German expansion, so instead he sought a non-aggression pact with the Germans to buy some security and time to prepare for a possible future war with Germany. In May 1939, Maxim Litinov, the People's Commissar for Foreign Affairs, was dismissed because of his Jewish ancestry. 
Molotov was appointed to succeed him as Stalin felt the Germans would be more open to negotiating with him versus a Jew. Molotov was succeeded in his post as prime minister by Stalin himself. So in 1939, Molotov, with Stalin's guidance, was able to establish a 10-year non-aggression pact between the Third Reich and Soviet Union, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, named after the respective foreign ministers. Not only did the pact secure peace between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, it allowed for a division of Eastern Europe between the two powers. This treaty allowed Hitler to secure his eastern flank and eliminated the possibility of the Soviet Union coming to the aid of Poland, his next target of conquest. For Stalin, this treaty gave the Soviet Union a false feeling of greater short-term security from a German attack and allowed the Soviet Union to regain more territory they had lost in 1918 in the Baltic, eastern, eastern Poland, and Finland without concern of German intervention. This treaty was a huge diplomatic coup. The Western democracies never saw it coming and assumed that given their ideological differences, they could never come to such an agreement. The Marxists viewed fascism and Nazism as a right-wing capitalist reaction to communism whereas Hitler considered the Slavic people subhumans and communism a Jewish conspiracy and outlined his desire to conquer Russia in his philosophical statement, Mein Kampf. The Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact governed Soviet-German relations until June 1941, when Hitler, having occupied France and much of Western Europe, turned east and invaded the Soviet Union. Molotov was responsible for telling the Soviet people of the attack when he instead of Stalin announced the war. Stalin, meanwhile, was in a state of shock and disbelief that he had been betrayed, and probably more so that he hadn't even seen it coming, despite warnings from the NKVD and the British. Following the German invasion, Molotov conducted urgent negotiations with Britain and later the United States for wartime aid. When Beria told Stalin about the Manhattan Project and its importance, Stalin handpicked Molotov to be the man in charge of the Soviet atomic bomb project. However, under Molotov's leadership, the bomb and the project itself developed very slowly, and Molotov was replaced by Beria in 1944 on the advice of Igor Gorbachev, the technical head of the Soviet atomic project. Molotov accompanied Stalin to the Tehran Conference in 1943, the Yalta Conference in 1945, and following the defeat of Germany, the Potsdam Conference. He represented the Soviet Union at the San Francisco Conference, which created the United Nations. Even during the wartime period of alliance, Molotov was known as a tough negotiator and a determined defender of Soviet interests. Molotov took part in all four conferences of foreign ministers of the victorious states in World War II. Molotov, at the direction of the Soviet government, condemned the Marshall Plan as imperialistic and claimed it was dividing Europe into two camps, one capitalist and the other communist. In response, the Soviet Union, along with the other Eastern Bloc nations, initiated what is known as the Molotov Plan. The plan created several bilateral relations between the states of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, and later involved in, evolved into the Council for Mutual Economic Assistance. In the post-war period, Molotov's power began to decline. A clear sign of Molotov's precarious position was his inability to prevent the arrest in December 1948 for treason of his Jewish wife, Polana Zem. Chuzana, whom Stalin had long distrusted. Consequently divorcing Molotov, she was convicted and sentenced to five years in a labor camp. After the death of Stalin in March 1953, she was released from captivity by Beria and reunited with her husband. Molotov never stopped loving his wife, and it is said that he ordered his maids to make dinner for two every evening to remind him that, in his own words, quote, she suffered because of me, close quote. During this period, Stalin had become to believe that the Jews were plotting to, against him. Stalin believed that a group of Jewish doctors were plotting to assassinate him. 
Despite this, neither Molotov nor his wife ever blamed Stalin directly for her imprisonment, but blamed anti-Semites around Stalin. In 1949, Molotov was replaced as foreign minister by Andrea Vyshkinsky, although retaining his position as first deputy premier and membership of the Politburo. By 1952, Molotov had fallen out of favor with Stalin completely, and at the 19th Congress, Molotov was said by Stalin to have committed grave mistakes, including the publication of a wartime speech by Winston Churchill. Stalin told Beria and Khrushchev he didn't want to see Molotov around anymore. Following Stalin's death, a realignment of leadership strengthened Molotov's position. Molenkov, Stalin's successor in the post of premier, reappointed Molotov as Minister of Foreign Affairs in March 1953. Although Molotov was seen as a likely successor to Stalin in the immediate after- aftermath of his death, he never sought to become leader of the Soviet Union. A troika was established immediately after Stalin's death, consisting of Melenkov, Beria, and Molotov, but ended when Melenkov and Molotov de- deceived Beria and had him arrested and executed on the orders of Khrushchev, the new party secretary. Khrushchev soon emerged as the new leader of the Soviet Union. He presided over a gradual domestic liberalization and thaw in foreign relations. Molotov, it was said, never respected Khrushchev or saw him as his superior and was critical of his liberalization and efforts. Molotov and old guard Stalinists seemed increasingly out of pace in the new regime. The events which led to Molotov's downfall began in February 1956 when Khrushchev launched an unexpected denunciation of Stalin at the 20th Congress of the Communist Party. Khrushchev attacked Stalin both over the purges of the 1930s and the defeats of the early years of World War II, which he blamed on Stalin's overly trusting attitude towards Hitler and the purges of the Red Army. Since Molotov was the most senior of Stalin's collaborators still alive and had played a leading role in the purges, it became obvious that Khrushchev's examination of the past would probably result in Molotov's fall from power. Consequently, Molotov became the leader of an old guard which tried to overthrow Khrushchev. In June 1956, Molotov was removed as foreign minister, and in June 1957, he was expelled from the Politburo following a failed attempt to remove Khrushchev as the first secretary. Eventually, he was banished as ambassador to the Mongolian People's Republic. Molotov and his associates were denounced as the anti-party group, but notably were not subject to execution that had been marked by the Stalin years. In 1960, he was appointed Soviet representative to the International Atomic Agency, which was seen as a partial rehabilitation. However, after the 22nd Party Congress in 1961, during which Khrushchev carried out his de-Stalinization campaign, including the removal of Stalin's body from Lenin's mausoleum, Molotov was removed from all positions and expelled from the Communist Party. In retirement, Molotov and his wife remained totally unrepentant about his role during Stalin's rule. Polina died of natural causes in 1970. Molotov would continue to live until 1986, dying of natural causes as well at 96, just five years before the fall of the Soviet Union. I want to take a quick break here and thank you again for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to share the show on social media or tell your friends to check us out or give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. I also want to do a shout out to Daniel Schmidt and Andrea Peterson for supporting the show. We appreciate you helping us to keep the show going. We also be listing our donors on the website on the donations page uh, with their rank in accordance to their respective monthly donation. Uh, We also have a list there of our capitalist and communist donors. 
So if you visit the website, you will also notice a world map. Uh, so the more Marxist contributors we have, more of the map will turn red. The more capitalist contributors we have, more of the map will turn blue. So after you make your donation, email us and let us know which side you back and which country you're interested in influencing on the map. So if you'd like to financially support the show, support us through Patreon. Any donation is greatly appreciated. The website is www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Now back to the show. Another character who has been reoccurring uh, character in the show has been James Forrestal, the first U.S. Secretary of Defense who urged Truman to take a tougher stance against the Soviets in opposition to Wallace and other New Deal Democrats. Forrestal was born in downstate New York, the son of Irish immigrants, and raised as a devout Roman Catholic. His father had immigrated to America from Ireland in 1857 and had established a successful construction company. Forrestal was very determined to enter college, but came from a middle-class background. Forrestal had his heart set on Princeton. It should be remembered that not many people went to college in those days, and not many middle-class boys wanted to attend an Ivy League school. Forrestal's father made about 2500 a year, but tuition at Princeton was about 600 a year, or about $16,000 a year in today's money. So Forrestal spent a good deal of time working and saving money to go to college during and after high school. He was very interested in becoming a journalist and writing for newspapers. After graduation from high school in 1908, Forrestal worked for three years for local newspapers in New York State and then entered Dartmouth College as a freshman in 1911, but transferred to Princeton University sophomore year. He served as the editor for the Daily Princetonian. He also became an amateur boxer in college, a pastime he would continue throughout most of his life, even when he worked on Wall Street. But he left Princeton just prior to completing work on a degree, apparently because of academic and financial difficulties. Although that's only a guess, we have no clear records as to why he left. He never publicly spoke about why he left, and when Princeton itself researched his absence, they had nothing in their records indicating why. Initially after college, Forrestal worked some odd jobs and struggled for 15 months until he went to work as a bond salesman for William A. Reed and Company in 1916, becoming a great salesman selling bonds in upstate New York in places like Rochester and Buffalo. When the U.S. entered World War I, he enlisted in the Navy and ultimately became a naval aviator. Forrestal spent much of his time in Washington, D.C. at the Office of Naval Operations while completing his flight training. He eventually reached the rank of lieutenant. After the war, Forrestal returned to working in finance and made his fortune on Wall Street. He became a partner in 1923, vice president in 1926, and president of Dillon Reed and Company in 1937. Forrestal worked extremely hard to build his fortune, though. He often began his day at 6 and wouldn't leave the office until 9. But in many respects, he saw money as a means to an end, not an end in itself. Forrestal was also very keen to grow his power base and knew that money was one of the fundamental ways to do that. So through the 1920s, and especially in the 1930s, he grew his wealth and hence his access to power. Forrestal, by all accounts, enjoyed the social circles he now traveled in after attending Princeton, but he lacked money and social standing, which I'm sure caused him to feel out of place or awkward on occasion and helped drive his desire for wealth. Forrestal wasn't shy about his background, though, and, it didn't hi and he didn't hide it. Often people said that he was very sarcastic and acted as if he were an outsider or social scientist conducting a study on the rich. Not a part of their world, but yet not below them either. At the same time, though, many found him odd but charming in his own funny way. At this point, moving amongst the rich for a decade, he had also became keen on many of their customs, speech, and forms of dress, buying tailored suits and attending country clubs and playing golf. Forrestal, it was said, both loved and despised Wall Street. 
Said Dean Matthey, who had recruited Forrestal to the firm, he was a cynical guy about wealth, who at times could be a little socialist. Forrestal, for example, could be extremely rude to people who mattered, like customers and superiors, but also extremely nice to people who reported to him and casual acquaintances. Forrestal lived a fast-paced social life, partying as hard as he was working with many young and beautiful women. However, he did agree to an open marriage, marrying Josephine Stovall, a Vogue writer, in 1926. However, Joe, as she was known, soon grew tired of this arrangement. She left her position at Vogue and eventually became a housewife like many women of her era. She wanted to influence American fashion and taste, but sadly lacked the apparatus to make that possible. Instead, she found herself hosting lavish parties, going out to nightclubs in the evening, and fashion shows during the day. The couple had many arguments on and off, and Forrestal thought of divorcing her. She came to accept her husband's lifestyle, and Forrestal agreed to remain married to Joe. It is said, regrettably, however, that both of them neglected their children and cared very little for them as they carried on virtually separate lives. It's said that he never asked his children how they were doing or showed any interest in their lives. Joe, as well, although she initially helped raise the children and prepare them for school, lost interest in them as their care was handed over to nannies. When their boys, Mike and Stephen, reached 10 and 7, respectfully, they were sent off to boarding school in Switzerland. Forrestal was always traveling for work or still dating and partying other women, which left Joe alone for long periods at a time. This eventually led to her into alcoholism and mental problems. Despite the Great Depression, Forrestal continued to prosper, buying a mansion in the suburbs, a house in Manhattan, and attending luxury parties and working at a frantic pace. His wealth by 1932, during the depths of the Depression, was a net $5 million, or $88 million in today's money. Forrestal also began traveling internationally for work, traveling to Europe and the Middle East, making connections overseas, and arranging a number of large oil deals. Despite the parties, women, and long work hours, Forrestal read widely on philosophy and history to expand his knowledge and the search for deeper meanings of life. Forrestal was said was deeply patriotic and had a deep belief in personal responsibility for the physical and economic security of the nation and started using his power and wealth to become involved in politics. He started acting as a publicist for the Democratic Party Committee in Dutchess County, New York, helping politicians from the area win elections at both the state and national level. One of those individuals aided by his work was his neighbor, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In 1933, though, was a tough year for Forrestal. Despite his support for FDR, he was called before a Senate hearing in reference to congressional hearings on Wall Street mismanagement. Forrestal was taken to task for not paying any income tax in 1929 for the 896000 or roughly $65 million in today's money, that he had made but which he had legally held in offshore accounts, similar to scandals like Apple Today, who does not pay any taxes. What he did was completely legal, but it made him look bad in the press. By the late 1930s, few big deals were taking place on Wall Street, and the good old days of the roaring 1920s had passed. The New Deal had stabilized the industry, but with the new stability came much smaller profit margins, so Forrestal began to look for work elsewhere. President Franklin Roosevelt appointed Forrestal a special administrative assistant in June 1940. Six weeks later, he was nominated him for the newly established position under Secretary of the Navy. In his nearly four years as undersecretary, Forrestal proved highly effective at mobilizing domestic industrial production for the war effort. By the end of World War II, the Navy would have some 6,000 warships and 3.2 million sailors. 
He flourished in wartime D.C. as a workaholic working seven days a week with a genius for organization, making him a rising star in the Roosevelt administration. He became Secretary of the Navy on May the 19th, 1944, after his immediate superior, Secretary Frank Knox, died from a heart attack. Forrestal led the Navy through the closing year of the war and the painful early years of demobilization that followed. Forrestal, along with Secretary of War Henry Stinson and Undersecretary of, the, of the State Joseph Grew, in the early months of 1945, strongly advocated a softer policy towards Japan that would permit a negotiated armistice or a face-saving surrender. Forrestal's primary concern was not the resurgence of a militarized Japan, but rather the menace of Soviet communism and its attraction for decimated, destabilized societies in Europe and Asia. And therefore, keeping the Soviet Union out of war with Japan was so strongly that he feel this about this matter that he cultivated a negotiations effort that sometimes many regarded as approaching insubordination. Joe, during this time, bored in the sedate confines of an official wartime Washington, was drinking more heavily than ever. Within the drunkenness, something even darker emerged. She was tormented by screaming hallucinations, paranoid fantasies that the Reds were after her and her family. She underwent brief treatment in New York, but Forrestal was frequently called from work to deal with his wife's crises. He never discussed her illness, and sometimes the public incidents must have been deeply embarrassing to him, like the time she passed out at a dinner table at a function at the British Embassy, or when she suddenly kicked a small kid walking down Connecticut Avenue. After the war, Forrestal urged Truman to take a hard line with the Soviets over Poland. He also strongly influenced the new Wisconsin senator, Joseph McCarthy, concerning infiltration of the government by communists. Forrestal also became involved in politics against communism in America, which upset many liberals who believed that a good relationship could be built with Joseph Stalin. In September 1946, Forrestal joined forces with James F. Byron's to oust cabinet members and former Vice President Henry Wallace after a speech Wallace gave calling for an end to the Cold War. Forrestal also opposed the unification of the military services proposed by the Truman officials. Forrestal was a fierce advocate for the Navy and believed the move would remove the Navy's autonomy. Even so, he helped develop the National Security Act of 1947 that established the National Military Establishment. In 1947, President Truman appointed him the first U.S. Secretary of Defense. The new position was relatively weak, though, as the three branches quarreled constantly over missions and funding. For example, the Navy wanted to invest in carriers, whereas the Air Force argued for long-range nuclear bombers, and the budget couldn't pay for both. The Air Force also wanted the Navy to stop production of all sea-based planes as they saw them as a challenge to their mandate. To this day, the services continue to jockey for funds and have turf wars. Forrestal quickly realized that this structure was unwieldy and began to argue for revisions as a result of his recommendations. A new act was passed in 1949 that created the Department of Defense, increasing the authority of Secretary of Defense and relegating the service chiefs to less-than-cabinet status. Forrestal continued to advocate for complete racial integration of the services, a policy eventually implemented in 1949. Forrestal, however, opposed the creation of the Israeli state. On the grounds, it would infuriate Arab countries who supplied oil needed for the U.S. economy and national defense. Instead, Forrestal favored a federalization plan for Palestine. As Secretary of Defense, facing the wholesale demobilization of most of the U.S. defense force structure, Forrestal resisted President Truman's efforts to substantially reduce defense appropriations, but was unable to prevent a 
a steady reduction in defense spending, resulting in major cuts not only in defense equipment stockpiles, but also in military readiness. By 1948, President Truman had approved military budgets billions of dollars below what the services were requesting, putting Forrestal in the middle of a fierce tug of war between the president and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Forrestal was also becoming increasingly worried about the Soviet threat. Forrestal felt that the Soviets were fanatical followers of communism and would risk war to spread their messianic faith. Forrestal, with his long working hours, had started to burn out in 1945. We also know that Forrestal suffered a loss of appetite and stomach problems. Psychiatrists who later treated Forrestal would backdate the onset of depression, insomnia, and restlessness and weight loss to this period. Governor of New York, Thomas E. Dewey, was expected to win the presidential elections of 1948. Forrestal met with Dewey privately, and it was agreed he would continue as Secretary of Defense in a new Dewey administration, weeks before the election. Pearsons published an expose of the meeting between Dewey and Forrestal. In 1949, angered over Forrestal's betrayal and continued opposition to his defense budget cuts and concerned about reports in the press over his mental condition, Truman abruptly asked Forrestal to resign. Exhausted from overwork, Forrestal entered psychiatric treatment on the day of his resignation from office. He was reported to have gone into a strange daze. He was diagnosed with, quote, severe depression, close quote, of the type seen in operational fatigue during World War II. It was decided to send the former Secretary of Defense to the National Naval Medical Center at Bethesda in Maryland, where it would be possible to deny his mental illness. According to contemporary medical reports, Forrestal had shed 22 pounds from his already wiry physique in the previous three months. Naval corpsmen kept around-the-clock shifts on Forrestal's accommodations, and he was look also looked in on by physicians. Forrestal seemed to be on the road to recovery, having regained 12 pounds since his entry into the hospital. However, in the early morning hours of May the 22nd, his body clad only in a pair of pajama pants was found on the third-floor roof below. Forrestal's alleged last written statement, touted in the contemporary press and later biographers as an implied suicide note, was part of a poem from a transla translation of Sophocles' tragedy Ajax. Ajax in Greek mythology had committed suicide after feeling wronged by the other Greeks when they had not given him Achilles' armor, but instead had given it to Odysseus. Ajax had tried to kill Odysseus, but the goddess Athena intervened and made him go temporarily insane. Ajax then killed the cattle of the Greek forces upon coming to his senses, felt even greater shame, and killed himself. Apparently, uh, during the guard's five-minute break, the guard walked out of his room and across a hall into adjoining kitchen. Forrestal at this point took off his sash from his robe and tied one end to the radiator uh, under the window and the other end around his neck, undid the screen, and climbed out the window. According to the coroner's report, Forrestal likely then jumped out the window and hung for some seconds suspended. The report also notes scuff marks on the cement work underneath the window indicating reflective kicking or possibly terrified second thoughts, to no avail. The sash gave way and Forrestal fell 13 floors, landing on an asphalt and crushed stone surface of a third-floor passageway roof. Death was instant. The coroner noted that the sash was still wound tightly around his neck. The front of the skull was crushed, his abdomen slit, and his lower left leg severed. The report notes that his watch was still running. 
The official Navy Review Board, uh, which completed hearings on May the 31st, waited until October the 11th, 1949, to release only a brief summary of its findings. The announcement, as reported on page 15 of the New York, of the October the 12th New York Times, stated that only that Forrestal had died from his fall from the window. It did not say what might have caused the fall, nor did it make any mention of a bathrobe sash cord that had been first reported as tied around his neck. According to the full report, which was not uh, released to the by the Department of the Navy until April the 4th, 2004. Of course, there's a lot on the internet about conspiracies regarding the death of Forrestal. I took uh, a hard look at these uh, theories and found that they were either A, didn't seem plausible, or B, lacked evidence to back up their claims. These theories suggest a possible assassination and government cover-up for the following reasons. They cite the fact that originally the cause of death was listed in the New York Times as an accident initially and that his brother claimed that he would never commit suicide. They also cite that documents uh, around his death were not declassified until 2004. Well, the fact that the New York Times initially ran the story as an accident does not scream conspiracy to me. Initially, papers will often run with the facts that they have to get the story out before other papers and adjust the story as more facts come out. The fact that his brother says he wouldn't commit suicide can't be taken as an undeniable truth. Many other witnesses claim that he wasn't of sound ma mind. The fact that the government would classify documents around his death is not surprising either. He was very recently the acting Secretary of Defense. His death occurred on a naval base, and it was still during the Cold War. It's not too surprising this remained classified until after the Cold War, and nothing in those documents from what I, what's available online uh, points to an assassination. The other big issue I see with these theories is motive. Who would benefit from his assassination and why? The three primary suspects uh, offered online are A, the Jews, because of his stance against the creation of Israel, B, his being a member of the Majestic 12, or C, the Pearl Harbor theory. The Jewish theory, from the looks of it, is classic anti-Semitism. The theory goes that Jews somehow are running the world from behind the scenes and that they killed Forrestal in revenge for his stance against the creation of Israel. For one, why would you? Forrestal was unsuccessful and Israel was established with U.S. and Soviet backing. Second, Israel was a new state in 1949, and the Mossad, or Israeli MI6, or kind of like Israeli MI-CIA, wasn't established until December 1949, some seven months after his death. It's doubtful that out of office and one step away from the madhouse, he would have posed any real threat to Israel, which would warrant them sneaking onto a U.S. military base and killing him without getting caught. The Majestic 12 is a theory that Truman created a committee to facilitate the recovery and investigation of alien spacecraft and to deal with the aliens from the Roswell crash. This theory claims that Forrestal was killed because he was going to go public with his information. There is, however, no hard evidence that I have seen in regards to the existence of the Majestic 12 or from what I've read about Forrestal for this to seem plausible. Finally, the Pearl Harbor theory claims that FDR had knowledge about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 and that they decided they would not do anything to stop the Pearl Harbor attack because they wanted to get America into World War II. The theory goes that Forrestal was going to release this information to the press. First off, why would he release such evidence if it was true? Because he would be indicting himself. Who commits a huge crime only to turn himself in years later after FDR is already dead? Who would that hurt but him? Uh, Truman was not president at that time. Moreover, U.S. intelligence in 1941 knew that the Japanese fleet had left harbor and that war was a possibility, 
But if you look at American intel during this period, we thought that the Philippines would be the flashpoint. This was before satellite tracking. We had no idea where the Japanese fleet was or where it was going. The U.S. was unable to break the Japanese naval code, JN-25, until May 1942. I could go into this a lot more, but it's really outside the context of our show. Interesting, or ironically, whichever way you believe, uh, it, uh, the lives of these two men, though very different, followed very similar trajectories. They both rose from semi-humble middle-class backgrounds to become major figures in their respective economic and political systems. Molotov, the revolutionary Bolshevik, rose to be a high-ranked member of the Politburo. Forrestal became a true capitalist, making a fortune on Wall Street, and rose to become a cabinet member and secretary of defense, yet both men fell from power after falling from their respective leaders' grace. Both of these men failed to read the tea leaves properly or adjust their sails in the changing winds of their time. Their meteoric rises in the 1920s and 30s were brought down in the end by the late 1940s. Forrestal worked hard to convince Truman that Stalin was a threat and to rebuild the U.S. military, but in the brink of his victory, he gambled against Truman winning in 1948 and lost everything. Molotov fell out of Stalin's favor from just bad luck, his wife being Jewish, but like Forrestal, he failed to adapt to the post-Stalin Soviet Union, remaining ever loyal to Stalin, a figure that couldn't protect him beyond the grave and probably would have purged Molotov had he lived beyond 1953. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 13. Check out our next episode on October the 15th, where we'll examine the lives of two minor power leaders, Ernst Bevin, the British foreign minister, and Joseph Tito, the leader of Yugoslavia. Both these leaders were not American or Soviets, but played important roles in shaping the Cold War. So join us next time as I share a little bit more about the background on these figures. Also, uh, don't forget, if you enjoy the show, to let your friends know about us. If you don't have a lot of friends in the history but still want to help us, give us a positive review in, on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. As always, of course, if you want to make a financial contribution in supporting the show, please go through Patreon on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. One word. Any donation size is accepted and appreciated. And if you have a moment, fill out our survey there to help us bring you a better show. And may the odds ever be in your favor. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet
Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.